We have really specialist data scientists working incredibly hard mathematical and statistical problems and doing models and whatnot, and that's great. But we also have this need where decisions need to be made right now, and we need a process where we have to consider all the things. You know, we have to consider MPS, and we have to consider analytics, and we have to consider prediction from machine learning models. And maybe we have to consider what's been done before, and, and I need someone to help me make this decision within weeks. And so that's really where the decision science function started for me. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsor, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Very excited to be here. In Data Futurology, uh, we cover the topics that are important for leadership in data science, analytics, and AI. We want to bring you different perspectives on the challenges that we're all facing. So these hopefully help you in your career and your progression and in help the adoption of these amazing technologies in your organization. Today, we are speaking with a very special guest. His name is Chris Dowsett. He is the VP and Head of Decision Science and Analytics at Starship. He is an Aussie who has spent some time overseas working in the US, in the UK, in Singapore. Now is back in Australia and I'm very, very excited to have Chris on the show. So mate, welcome. How are you going today? Yeah, good. Thanks. And, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Very, very exciting. I'm, I'm yeah, really excited to have you on. Mate, start by telling us uh, a bit about your your background and your obviously quite uh, interesting and, and diverse career and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, um, honestly, I, I kind of fell into data, if, if I'm truly honest about it. Um, I started life, I, you know, at UQ and here in Brisbane. Um, I started a computer science degree, you know, with the coding and they put us into this Java course. And honestly, I, I hated it. I was like, what am I doing? They made us do a bouncing ball across the screen, you know, in code. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm never going to make a bouncing ball, you know, go across the screen. And so, um, yeah, I was flipping through one of those university course guides and, and looking through and I found this, this social science degree in, in quantitative research methods uh, and just thought, wow, that sounds incredibly interesting. I get to do research you know, and look at kind of why people do what they do. Uh, so I started that. And funnily enough, as part of that degree, you, also, you do a lot of stats, but you do coding as well, you know, on, on kind of big data sets and you use SPSS and, you know, look at public data feeds and whatnot. And so I was just enamored with it. Uh, so I kind of fell into data that way. And then straight out of uni, uh, moved to the UK because my family or half of my family are from the UK. So I went over there to kind of meet those folks and yeah, I got a job with uh, the Office for National Statistics, which is the UK equivalent of, of the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Uh, they put me in as a statistical officer based, you know, on my degree and background. And then kind of my data career took off from there. Uh, spent a few years doing that. And then you know, this was at the height of kind of the big data hype. Big data was everywhere. You know, yeah. machine learning just started to be a thing. 
uh, all these big companies were like, how do I get my hands on big data and, and you know, how do I do it? Uh, and, and the big, you know, the kind of data titles that exist today, like data analytics, data scientists, decision scientists, they, they didn't exist back then. Mm. Uh, so my title is kind of a quantitative researcher or as a statistics based researcher kind of pushed me in that direction. Cause they were like, great, we need you, you know, about data, you know, <laughs> about this thing called big data, come over here and help us with this thing called web analytics, database analytics, you know, CRM analytics, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so, yeah, that I kind of just, just fell into it that way and slowly, you know, moved around. As you mentioned, I was in the UK for a bit, uh, did a lot of quantitative research there and then moved to Singapore to do the advertising analytics um, mm-hmm. under Ipsos for big companies, you know, like Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson and whatnot, because a lot of those uh, advertising analytics goes goes through Ipsos. Uh, yeah, and then moved to the the US where I worked for a bunch of tech companies. Uh, started in LA, working for Quantum, doing a bunch of marketing analytics. They gave me this thing called social social media analytics because they were like, "You're young, you know about data. Do social analytics. We, we don't know what this is, but figure it out." Love it. Uh, all of their web analytics, you know that kind of stuff, and then kind of kind of moved up into Silicon Valley from there where I worked for Intuit. Again, marketing analytics, a bit of customer analytics, product analytics. Uh, came back to Australia really quickly to finish my PhD, which was on data use and decision-making. Because at that time, you know, I'd been working in analytics and data and the hype around data and whatnot. And all the executives were like, we want data, we want data, we want data kind of deal. Uh, but what I found was their decision-making was just completely different, very different across the spectrum. Different executives kind of had different takes on how to use data in their decision-making process. And so just, just you know, as a data professional, I was fascinated by that. And I'm like, why does one executive make a decision with data, you know, what seemed to be a really good process? So they considered all the data and then made a fairly objective decision. And then some people you know, they would see all the data and then still kind of go with their gut or go with their mm-hmm. intuition or their experience. I'm like, why is that? If everyone's talking about data and, and using this data to make decision and data is probably one of the most objective pieces of information you can get, you know, as long as it's done properly. And so why mm-hmm. is there such variation? Um, so that led me into my PhD topic, which is, yeah. you know, data use and decision-making. So I did that back here. Uh, and then as I was finishing that up, working in customer analytics for Suncorp Bank, I got a call from some colleagues at Instagram who said, we, we want to set up this thing called decision science. We think you'd be great at it. Kind of, would you consider it and come over? And so, of course, you know, this was, um, Instagram was, you know, not, not the kind of massive social platform it is today. I think at the time I joined, it was 400 million-ish users, which is huge. Don't get me wrong, but, yeah. like, you know, but today, yeah. Um, so it was early days, you know, yeah. for Instagram. <laughs> and so I thought, yeah, this this sounds amazing. And went over there for four years and built built the decision science team and uh came back, came back to Australia during COVID uh about a year ago to kind of do the same, head up all the analytics for for a spaceship in in Sydney, which is uh a, a micro investing and, and superannuation app. So yeah, that's kind of my whirlwind 
kind of dangerous. It's Ma- amazing, amazing yeah. career so far and amazing experience. Um, yeah. So yeah, keen, keen to dive into so many parts of that. Uh, I might ask start, start by asking you about your PhD, actually. Um, and yeah, so tell, tell me tell me a bit more about the the differences that you saw um, in in the decision making, how the, the data was used, uh, where essentially where, where you got to with the research. Um, and yeah, I love the 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 um, the overlay that you have on the people side. Um, obviously, from from the social science, besides having like the, the strong stats and analytics and that combination. Um, seems to be like a really strong thread through your, throughout your career, um, like focusing on, on people. And the, so anyway, tell, tell me more about the, the PhD, man. Sounds so interesting. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky. I got I, I went through uh, the University of Southern Queensland. And the, and the reason I did my PhD with those folks is because they had a very uh, flexible program. You basically wrote a submission for what you would like to study and if they felt like they could support it, you know, through supervision, through a supervisor and had kind of people who are experts in that space or close to it, then they, they would support your PhD. So I essentially got to pick my topic, um, which would highly recommend for anyone who's considering a doctorate can, you know, pick your topic because <laughs> yeah. at year three, when you're doing your PhD, uh, it really helps to really like what you're studying. Um, yeah, so I picked, like, like I mentioned, I, I really struggled. So I was in, you know, these big companies and you would have, as I mentioned, a, a leader who was very good. You know, I would go and present the findings or some analysis across different sources, whether it be customer analytics, marketing analytics, uh, survey science type analysis, you know, and you present. And some leaders, very receptive, consider the data, seem to be very objective, you know, kind of took it all in uh talk through the process talk through what they were thinking with you as an analyst which is always the dream because you get to come you know input a lot on that um and then would you know come to a conclusion in a fairly process driven data driven way and you're like that's great that's perfect that's the kind of leader i want to work with and then over here you would you know go go and present and then they would kind of consider all the information and be like okay that's great but i don't i don't think that's true or I'm going to go with this other thing, which I believe to be more true than what the data is saying. And, and it just perplexed me. I was just completely confused by this spectrum. So I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to have a look at this and I'm going to have a look at how people use data, how specifically they use it in decision-making mm-hmm. and kind of why uh, they kind of make the decisions they make and the processes they go through to get to that decision. You know, what's influencing the different processes, what's kind of going through their minds and kind of how they're looking at the different things and what, what might be their influences. And so you can imagine uh, that leads to looking at a lot of biases that people have. You know, we hear all the time about personal biases, like recency bias, you know, you, you, give more weight to something that's more recent. There's that confirmation bias, which is you give more weight to something which holds true to your values and what you believe to be true. So you give that that weight. So we hear about that all the time. And what my research looked at was, okay, so in addition to your personal biases, because we're all people, you know, we're all going to a company, but essentially we're all people um, making decision. There's also organizational biases. Mm. So, the way, the way a company stores data, for example, is a kind of bias. And 
bias doesn't have to be good or bad. Some people do it better than others and some people structure things and do learning as an organization better. But there's all these organizational pieces. So the, just the way a company is structured influences a decision maker's process as they consider these things. The industry someone's in influences it. Uh, their go-to-market tactics, you know, uh-huh. whether I talked to one company as part of the research, which was purely M&A focused that, you know, they did a little marketing, a little customer acquisition, but essentially their growth was based on M&A and they, and they were not shy about saying that. Uh, and there are other companies that, you know, more traditional, they go out they do some marketing and, and acquire customers. So all these things influence a way someone makes a decision and the way they interpret data from their analytics or or data team. And so, yeah, a lot of the research was just laying out all those biases and just just calling them what they are and mm. saying, you know, the best thing you can do as an organization and as a team and as a decision maker is to be aware of them to begin with. That's that, It feels like an obvious, but it's a huge step just to lay it out. Like the way we go to market is going to influence this decision, you know, and so be it. Uh, and then the next best thing you can do is, as best as possible, have a process that you go through. And so I laid out a process in my research, which you can find on my blog, shameless mm. blog. Yeah, good. But, but the main thing is just having a process that you follow each and every time because it won't remove your bias because they're always going to be there with just people, yeah. but it will limit it and kind of help you get closer to objectivity and considering the data in the most objective way. Well, that's, yeah. that's, mate, that's extremely helpful. Um, yeah, because I've, um, you know, I've, I've, I've seen this in practice and I worked in organizations where um, sometimes an industry is trying to solve a, a problem um, and there's multiple ways to, to approach it. And organizations get set up around one of those approaches. So essentially they're doubling down their basis there. They're basing their existence on that, that this is the way to solve that industry problem. Right. Um, and therefore, like the, the huge biases of starting point that like this is the correct way, even though the industry might still be trying to figure it out, um, yeah. if, if that makes sense. So then kind of like everything that you do as a company, everything that you say, everything that you produce is around like, this is the the way to solve this this problem um and yeah and i've seen i've seen uh often like very smart very talented people just like stick to their guns because that's just because like that's what we said we're gonna be about um instead of just working through it in in what you know what complex decision making is but you gotta try multiple things and kind of like let it almost let it emerge, let the most best, uh, best option emerge. So, um, so mate, this is, yeah, super, super interesting, um, super relevant. Um, Any, any thoughts on that? And then, and then I'll ask you on um, if you can give us an overview of the, of the process as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, no no other thoughts except to say, you know, you're hundred percent right. It's almost like a self-fulfilling cycle. And, I think, you know, my research didn't go this far, so this is a personal opinion, but uh, I think it, you know, it's, it's why it's so hard for truly disruptive, you know, innovation to come out in different industries. So when you think of like insurance, for example, it's been done the same way for what, 100, 150 years, you know, um, 
And so it takes a lot. It's very hard for kind of people to break out of that self-fulfilling cycle and organizations too, because it's like, this is the way we've always been doing it and it works. It must work for a reason, right? But then every now and then someone comes along like your, your lemonade insurance in the US, which I think about all the time. And they say, no, insurance doesn't have to be for profit. We're going to donate all those profits kind of deal. And you know, their, their innovation is much more complex than that, but you kind of get the idea. It's very hard, but every now and then kind of someone. And for the people that don't know, uh, my, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of, of Lemonade and the, the business model there is that the insurance is done in, in kind of like small groups of people who typically know each other. They pay their insurance, they pool their money. If somebody needs that money, comes out of the pool. But if that money then is not required within a, finite period then it's dispersed whatever is left is dispersed back to the people that put into the pool at the beginning is that is that right am i missing like, yeah well, a lot of the premiums are kind of donated so as you go into lemonade huh? uh you're right in that it kind of goes into this pool you know based on their probability and, and things they've calculated for their insurance and then whoever needs it you know your house needs renovation or, or fixing whatever it'll be paid to you and then if they've got it wrong, so if, you know, more pe- premiums are paid in than what is needed, it doesn't go to the shareholders or the company. It kind of goes goes to charity or chosen charities by the customers, which is an amazing uh, model. And it's all based on, you know, data science and AI and then, like, you interact with a bot. So it's incredibly, um, you know, forward, forward-facing. And it's just, it's just a really, it feels like a really clever approach to an industry that was 150 years old and kind of stodgy and wasn't innovating so yeah that's really nice that's a yeah that's a really nice model um yeah and sometimes when when i see organizations struggling to make um innovations and definitely around business models and having leaps like this one that we're discussing with lemonade in the insurance industry when i see that when i see established incumbent organizations struggling to do that Tell me your opinion, but I kind of see it that the these incumbent organizations, they're almost like a, a machine designed to make money, almost like an engine where you put $1 in and you get $3 out the other end or you get $5 out. So there's there's all this, um, this oversight to make sure that nobody's breaking the machine. <laughs> kind of like this engine works, don't mess it up. And then as a result, like they, they almost like they crystallize into the, the, the shape and the business model that they, that they have today. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm a big fan of having the, the independent entity, which sometimes owned by, well, partially owned by the incumbent, but completely detached. That is a challenger to the incumbent. Uh, otherwise, the innovation is going to come from, from somewhere else. Um, what, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And um, yeah, I mean, it just goes back to, I love I love how people kind of just rethink the whole process and the whole machine to your point. And just, you know, it's just a complete blank slate and they just, they kind of go back to the very beginning, which is incredibly hard to do. And I, um, you know, companies spend millions on this. They, they incubate, they do their own thing and to upend their own machine kind of thing. But they, they always kind of fall a bit short. You know, I've worked for companies that have fallen a bit short, even though they've tried really hard. And um, it's just incredibly uh, motivating, I guess, to see, you know, the machine being broken and reinvented and redone. And, and Lemonade's a good example. And there are countless others, you know, and I think as we go into the next 
50 years uh, as we deal with, you know, climate change and all these uh, green technologies, you know, it's, it's crypto, you know, all that, all that space is just ripe. It's ripe for kind of the money-making machines to be undone and then redone. That's kind of a bit more beneficial um, probably to society and communities and, and the world at large, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Love it. Um, so could you could you give us a, an overview of the, the process uh, that came out of or that you designed during your research? And then I'll ask you about the um, the differences in, in, in titles that you've had through your career and how that, that shaped the, the focus of, of the teams, uh, particularly around decisions. Uh, but first, tell us uh, yeah, a, bit, a bit about the process. The, sorry, the, the doctorate, the XR model. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, yeah, so essentially what it does is, so it's a five-step model to begin with, and it makes you, or, or the intent of it is to make you kind of consider things outside of maybe what you would have if you were biased towards your personal and organizational experience. And that that essentially is the crux of it because, um, as I mentioned, you have these personal biases. So your personal experience influences and biases how you use data the teams you've worked on the roles you've been in you know all these things kind of come into it and so immediately if you're someone who i'm going to make it up if you've been working in sales for a very long time uh you might be used to a world of lead scoring and crm data and and lead data and so you'd be very familiar with that you know those kind of data groups you might be less familiar Again, making it up, but, you know, go with me here. You might be less familiar with, say, qualitative or focus group research, or you might be less familiar with, uh, I don't know, predictive analytics on product behavior because you've been sitting at the front of the funnel with sales and lead generation and lead scoring and whatnot. And so your familiarity is a bias. And so you, what I found in my research is you as an individual will kind of lean towards mm. the data sources that you're familiar with and give more weight to those. So if you know a lot about MPS, for example, and MPS data, and you understand that and you've been using that your, your entire career, you're going to give a lot more weight to that versus something a bit crazy, a bit scary, brand new that you just don't know anything about. And so that that's your personal bias. And then, like I mentioned, the organizational bias are things like, you know, some companies are entirely geared around their MPS score and they do very well at that because they listen to the qualitative feedback that might come through an MPS and they map MPS scores to kind of profit and whatnot. So they do a very good job with that data set. But the downside of that is they might not consider other data, say, I don't know, social media data that might be giving them more clues to add to what they've already got. You know, mm. so the whole point of my process, it's called, XR by, by process. So I C S A R they're all five steps in the model. And like I mentioned, you can, you can read about it more on my blog than I won't go into in crazy detail, but it kind of forces you to go through these steps to think about other data sources and other clues and other insights and other areas of, of knowledge and, and data so that you're hopefully less biased than what you were at the beginning because of those things I mentioned. So your first step is essentially I for input uh, or insight, you know, you might be looking at your MPS survey, for example, that you collect on a weekly basis. And all of a sudden, everyone's complaining about your app or, you know, the website, you're like, okay, something's here, something's broken, broken. We're losing kind of customer engagement or customer traction because of this issue. That's your kind of first nugget 
And then you move on to S, which is looking at, it's essentially a synthesis. So looking at the different um, data sources. So from there, if your, your app is broken, you might go, okay, now I need to look at app analytics and I'm synthesizing my MPS data with other data sources to confirm that this is a real issue. So the app really is broken. My app analytics might be telling me, oh, I'm losing time spent on app or people just aren't engaging or clicking a button because maybe that button's broken. So you just kind of triangulating um, that resource. And then you move on to the next step, which is to look at all the other kind of knowledge in the organization. So the C is kind of collaboration, looking outside of your immediate area. So again, you're looking for learnings in other parts of the department. Who else is seeing this, for example? Are you seeing other data sources or other learnings? Has this happened before? What happened last time? You know, you're essentially looking for the organizational knowledge at this point to help you, again, triangulate and kind of think about what you might do yeah. uh, with, with that insight. A is the, the taking the action bit. You act on that. You act on, okay, it's broken. I need to fix it. Let's fix it. Let's also track the logs or the data or to make sure when we do fix that button, kind of our engagement metrics go up. Hopefully the NPS goes back to where it was. You know, our customers stop complaining about us, for example. So that's your action step. And then R is really what was the result of that action? And the idea here is you feed back yep. into the organizational learning loop. And so this learning from that process you went through then becomes a little bit of insight or body of knowledge that someone else can use next time something breaks so what was the result when you fix that button did the engagement go up for example did the mps return if so were they happier than before and so it just kind of forces that loop goes into the body of knowledge someone can draw down on that you know in another example and the whole point in there is you start with your insight which is probably a data set you're familiar with so that's probably where your personal organizational bias comes in you synthesize it you're looking at other stuff and it's forcing you to kind of take a look around. So hopefully limiting your, your bias towards the data sets, you know, because it's forcing you to look elsewhere. Then the C, you're looking around the company and you're collaborating, you're talking with other colleagues. So again, hopefully forcing down that bias and, and kind of, again, forcing you to expand where you're looking for insights and what you're considering as you make this decision. You take action you get the results. So you push knowledge back into the system. Again, hopefully reducing the bias of others as they go through this process, because all of a sudden they have this new bit of knowledge you've created. Um, and then hopefully that just organizationally that reduces the bias, you know, slowly over time. And of course there are, you have to have mechanisms behind this, right? So you got to have the data, you got to be collecting it. You got to be willing to look outside and then you have to have the kind of learning mechanism. So you know, you have to acknowledge that in the process, but assuming you have the willingness and the intent to have all those and build on those, and then this process should hopefully, you know, limit your bias. Right. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh shit. Like so many examples um, from my experience were going through my mind as you're, as you're uh, telling us about the, the process going like, shit, that'd be so helpful. Um, yeah, like for example, even even at the uh, at the moment. So I work. Uh, so my my day job is in a healthcare AI company, um, where, where we work with with uh, lots of clients in the healthcare industry uh, across across the the spectrum. Um, 
So, and, and, um, and I've noticed differences in, in different partners and different clients that they, that they, as you were saying, they go to the data that they, uh, that they know, that they like, that they trust. Um, sometimes it's around experience, like NPS. Sometimes it's around uh, marketing and, and customer acquisition. Sometimes around retention. Um, sometimes it's about outcomes, like how healthier are people getting after our interventions? Um, and then, and then obviously financial um, type of metrics. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been surprised at how long it's taken us in, in working with, with some customers to get them to expand the horizons of metrics that they're comfortable with engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had one client in particular that we were expanding. So if we think, if we think about those, those kind of like five categories that I mentioned before, they might have started, um, the client might have started focusing on one. And then over time, we got them focusing on two, focusing and, and comfortable. We got them almost comfortable with three. And then they had a huge restructure. Mm. And like they change a heap of people that we were dealing with. New people came in back to square one. It was literally like yeah. they're like, okay, no, we really like this one metric. And we're like, oh <laughs> that, yeah, I've been there. I know exactly what you're talking about. You just see it time and time again. And um, you know, unless nothing changes if nothing changes, right? And uh until the organization the organization kind of sits down and kind of has a heart-to-heart conversation with itself and you put in something like an XR model or any kind of framework that removes it. You just, you know, teams change, new managers come in, they have their experience and their bias, quote-unquote, and, you know, things they're familiar with. And, of course, that's that's what people are going to go to. It happens so often, time and time again. Um, exactly. It's like a break, but, Yeah. Well, mate, no, that's um, that's good, good findings um, on Thanks. on what can help. Um, so that's really good, awesome. So um, I I'm loving this 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 theme that we have around decision making, uh, around biases, around how to how to widen our perspectives and make uh, better uh, better decisions from the data and uh, and insights that we're that we're getting, which I think kind of leads us to um, to the titles that you've had and how that's changed over time and um so at, in looking at your at your career you've gone kind of like from analytics um to more of a decision science over the past about four or five years um can you tell us about the the differences in focus based on the on the titles what that what that means to you yeah sure 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 uh I guess the analytics space, and again, this was, you know, um, as I mentioned, I came into data as this big data thing was taking off, this web analytics was taking off, databases were being built, you know, and Oracle was having a field day, um, pre-Salesforce and whatnot. And uh, yeah, so you had, you had, I would say when I started, you probably had the older quote unquote titles. So quantitative researcher, you know, research consultants, whatnot. They, they had been around for a little while, particularly through, you know, market research and, and those places. And some companies, some forward-thinking companies were hiring mathematicians, statisticians, you know, those titles existed. Data science kind of didn't really exist that I had seen mm-hmm. at that point. Um, so then this thing called web analytics, you know, came to the front. And I think... 
organizations started to think, okay, we perhaps don't need, you know, pure play mathematicians, statisticians, because we're not insurance, you know, with actuarial science doesn't exist in um, fast moving consumer goods yet right now, you know? So we might not need that, but this web analytics thing is really intriguing. This database analytics thing is really intriguing data science, you know, data analysis. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think we need analytics, you know, and, and the focus of that was always what can you get for us from whether it's a web analytics tool or a database or what, what can you tell us to kind of make us a bit, a bit smarter. We don't need you to be a pure play statistician, mathematician, but we do need, we do want to leverage this thing, big data. And we, we want you to make a smarter kind of deal and tell us about our customers and what people are doing on this thing called websites, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I think that's how it's, how it started. Cause like I mentioned, I started as a statistician statistical officer in the UK government moved into a quantitative researcher. And it was just then, you know, we were talking to big companies like Virgin about what are they, what are you, how are you matching up your customer research with your web analytics data, for example, and uh, how are you matching up the MPS or, or research customer satisfaction with your database? And, you know, we can do this fun thing. And I was just learning HTML and CSS at the time. And I'm like, you can build a fun calculator that combines your customer research with your database data. And the, you know, companies are loving stuff like that. How can we make this web thing cool and use data and all, all that thing? So I think that's where the analytics piece came from. It was really this applied, like pull us some data and apply it to our business and help us kind of understand a little bit more about our customers. And slowly that evolved. You know, I, and I stayed in the analytics realm because I love that. I love the application of data to a business problem that kind of gets me really excited, you know, and kind of up in the morning. Uh, and at the same time, companies were, were realizing, wow, you know, the insurance companies and these credit card companies are hiring these mathematicians. Maybe we should start doing that. We should build this data science realm. And that, you know, kind of took off in parallel with analytics. And I think what kind of slowly happened is analytics kind of maybe was a misnomer for, for web analytics and maybe just marketing analytics. And then data science, statistics, mathematics kind of kept growing this really big, exciting journey. Uh, so what, where decision science came from is, is kind of this analytics kind of got this misnomer and, you know, data science, ma- mathematics was over here and, and doing really well. And what happened was in the middle, you know, the data science realm, we're going deep into like machine learning and predictive models and, you know, neural nets and whatnot, building these amazing tools. Um, and in marketing, for example, which is a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the, the, the time I spent in my career, you know, media mix modeling or marketing mix modeling, as you might know, attribution models and whatnot. But media mix modeling takes three years worth of data at that point, it's getting better now, but at that point, three years worth of data, logistic regression-based modeling or, or similar, um, three months to build this model to make it accurate. And then we report back and guess what? By then, decision makers are six months further on in their business process. <laughs> They're going back to media mix models that are out, you know, based on data from six months ago. And so they're like, okay, that's great. That told me what happened last year and six months ago, but now I'm already six months into my planning cycle. I need some some more immediate support. And so mm-hmm. things like attribution models definitely came up 
in that point, but also this decision science. And so, as I mentioned, I got the call to start this decision science function at Instagram. Facebook had one. It was very, the, the Facebook version was very focused on kind of survey science and, and mm-hmm. survey analytics. Uh, and the reason for that was just the decision science team at Facebook was supporting the CMO. The CMO had decided that they were going to focus on kind of sentiment-based and brand-based measures. So that's why that team organically grew into survey science and survey scientists. Mm. Instagram threw up a different challenge. They said, we we don't just want to focus on surveys. We think that's important, yes, but we also want to look at cross-app behavior, what's happening in different countries, Japan versus Italy and um, customer and user behavior. And we want to look at marketing data and marketing analytics, you know, and, and we want to look across the board. We don't just want to look at the survey science like Facebook has done because Facebook, you know, go to market is approached that way. Instagram though, we're going to be more holistic. Cause like I said, when I joined, we're only at 300, 400 million users ish. We had just launched stories when I joined. Wow. That feels like it's been around forever, but ah. I joined maybe two months or one month after they launched stories. And so you know, Instagram wasn't this kind of foregone success story. It was still kind of finding its way, if you can believe it. Uh, and so, you know, the CFO of the Facebook group gave my eventual boss, who's the Instagram CMO challenge. And he said, I know Facebook decision science does survey science, but I want Instagram decision science, or I want you to build something for me that looks at survey data, customer usage data, I want to understand what my marketing is impacting on behavior, for example. I want to understand the full thing. I want it to be much more holistic. Uh, And I know we have data scientists, but what they're working on is really specialized models, you know, feed algorithms, for example, uh, stories-based algorithms, algorithms for our direct, which is the private messaging product that Instagram used to have. They're extremely focused. But what I don't know is if I make an investment in a new feature, what's going to happen tomorrow for users globally? What's going to happen for users in Japan tomorrow? How does marketing influence that? How does my uh, PR and comms influence that? And so all these questions, you know, were there, which is why they set up or kind of gave me the call to set up this thing called decision science. They'd seen the Facebook model. They thought there was something intriguing there, but they thought it could be expanded to kind of customer and user analytics. Uh, and so they said, come over and, and give this thing a try, um, prove its case. And if it works, you know, you, you, you can build a decision science team. And so you can imagine going in there, new team is looking at, can do country level analytics. We're looking at growth analytics in countries where the growth team wasn't focused because we were the only team that could do that. Mm. Uh, we were looking at user behavior between you know, Instagram stories and Instagram direct and Instagram feed, but then also from Instagram into Facebook or Instagram into Messenger, you know, and and cross app. And no other team was doing that because the data science teams were very vertical, very focused on improving the product under a specific feature like stories. Mm -hmm. So these these business decisions were just waiting on a team like this to come up and, and, you know, give them the, some some support. So I could sit in meetings, you know, with the CFO or the CMO and he might say something like, Chris, you know, I've got, we've, we've had a budget extension of $20 million. 
I don't really know what to do with that. <laughs> how can you help me make a data-driven decision on how to best spend that 20 million? Or where should we launch this first feature? You know, we're, we're building this feature. We think it'll be incredibly sticky, but we're not sure what countries to test it in or to launch it in. And we got to get this thing out in two months because, you know, that's where the market is. And so there was this immediate need to make decisions and they were clamoring for data. And so that's that's kind of how decision science started. Um, that's kind of how I wrote my, my blog on it. And at the same time, funnily enough, or just shortly thereafter, Google did the same thing and, you know, hired a chief decision science officer who was previously a data scientist, Cassie. And um, so they built decision science. I think the Commonwealth Bank built decision science around the same time. So I think that was just an acknowledgement of we have analytics and analyst support. We have really specialist data scientists working incredibly hard mathematical and statistical problems and doing models and whatnot, and that's great. But we also have this need where decisions need to be made right now. And we need a process where we have to consider all the things you know, we have to consider MPS and we have to consider analytics and we have to consider prediction from machine learning models. And maybe we have to consider what's been done before. And, and I need someone to help me make this decision within weeks. And so that's really where the decision science function started for me. Right. Super, super exciting. Um, yeah. And where, where do you see the industry going now between the, the changes of what happened then to what, what do you see happening now? Um, how is it all evolving? Uh, for decision science specifically or just across all data? Either. I will think, yeah, yeah. up to you. Um, you know, I think, I think decision science, for, for me at least, is a really exciting place to be right now. The reason is I get to use data and analytics and, you know, sometimes machine learning, sometimes as a dashboard, sometimes I'm building a trigger bait, a data trigger-based tool, you know? And so I find working on the variety of problems incredibly exciting because they, it doesn't matter what the tool is, so to speak, because you're, you're kind of uh, helping a business decision and having business impact and that using data to do that is incredibly exciting to me. So I think decision science as a function is, is starting to get that recognition. Uh, and I, you know, people ask me about it in LinkedIn a lot. So that that's, that's my barometer, uh, so biased, but that's, you know, that's where I'm coming from. Um, so I think that is going to be an incredibly exciting space because you, as an analytics person or a decision scientist, are solving business problems. And so I think that will grow. I think there will probably be a convergence there with, the analytics roles that might still exist or the titles might change, you know, so there might be some fuzziness between decision science and analytics for a little while, but I think there will ultimately be that big cohort of data savvy analysts who are solving short and medium term problems. And then I think the data science function, you know, as exciting as it is, it'll still continue to be massively exciting. It'll still continue to have massive impact. I think there'll be, either some convergence there with ML ops that's coming up in this space, you know, and I think that will become more uh, business driven in a way. So one thing I hear right now, there are some data science teams who are incredibly business driven and having massive business impact. And then there are some business, uh, sorry, data science teams who 
are still quote unquote kind of playing with cool ML, you know, and, and so a lot of that data scientists, um, cause I've been talking to a few people recently as part of some blogs I'm writing and they're, talk- they're saying they're having trouble with the data scientists who want to build the next cool thing because it's cool, not because it's, you know, going to have a business impact. And so as a business manager, they're kind of struggling to align those two values. And so, um, I think there's something there that's kind of confusing the market right now. We have some data science teams who are perhaps not having as much impact because they're just, you know, they might be trying to build neural nets or they might be trying to build a cloud-based ML something Hmm. because it's cool uh, and it's fun and it's exciting to do that. And it's definitely, you know, looks great on the resume and, you know, Kaggle competitions look great on the resume when you come in the top 1%, you know. Uh, But then there are some data science teams who are just having tons of, business impact. And so I think there will be the need to kind of uh, people to get out of the cool. And and so I think that data science business impact will become even more focused and that will be combined with ML ops. So it'll be kind of data science at scale, even Mm -hmm. more so than what there is now. Yeah. So I think, I suspect those two groups will kind of clean themselves up a bit and they'll both focus on business impact, but there will always be as far as I imagine it, you know, a decision science, business decision driving, data driving, you know, the people a CMO can go and talk to or a CFO can ring up and be like, hey, I'm getting conflicting data here. Can you help me make sense of this? For my decision I need to make in three weeks, you know, uh, for, for a plan. And then there's the whole, what does story, Instagram stories look like? in five years and and what is the data driven architecture behind that or, or you know the machine learning or the ai that will drive that in future and, and what does that look like so yeah i can kind of see those two groups going in that direction right i love that um 100 the i yeah i i completely completely agree that the um prioritizing the business focus uh getting the technical people to have more domain knowledge and to be able to um, help business leaders piece things together in, in the data and be able to, to make decisions. Um, definitely, definitely a key critical. And I love your, your focus on uh, MLOps for, for the data science space around um, productionizing and getting value from, from the things that will make a business impact. Um, mm-hmm. Having that, that focus is it's going to make a huge, a huge amount of difference. Do you see that in in this um, in this view? Do you see much difference between Australia and the US? I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and bear in mind, I've only worked for a few companies in Australia, yeah. and you can look at my resume to see what they are. Uh, but uh, I would say the, the US is probably. I'm going to say three to five years ahead, maybe. Mm, uh, yeah. I would say that with an asterisk, though. And the asterisk is I see the startups coming out of Australia now incredibly data-focused, data-savvy. They're looking at models in, like, the Europe, the US, for example, and they're clamoring for the same. So, you know, I, I imagine the startups coming out of Australia now are, are not settling for the fact for that we don't know anymore because so much can be known, whether it's with time or money or, or, you know, the right kind of tracking and whatnot. And whereas in the US right now, 
there's there's no acceptance of the we don't know and we can't find this out. They just they just don't accept that as a statement, um, particularly in Silicon Valley, as you can imagine. And so everything is data driven. Every decision, you know, uh, whether it's like I mentioned, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in budget go, went through my team. A simple campaign went through my team. You know, whether we should up our daily impressions from two impressions per user to eight impressions per user went through my team. Um, optimizing creative, you know, went through my team. Whether we should launch a feature in Italy or Japan, you know, all these kind of big decisions always went through one, if not multiple data teams for consultation, um, input, guidance, you know, and very early on. And so I would say just on mass Australia is behind the U S in that regard. So I, you know, I've, I see a lot of the bigger companies, I guess, who struggle to bring in data early on in the process, which I, I know would be incredibly frustrating if you worked as a data person in that country, uh, company, but I caveat that with, I think the newer companies that I see are following more what you see in the U S where data is front and center. They're hiring data people nice and early, you know, in founding teams, often they're setting up data early. Engineers, for example, have a really strong uh, preference for data-driven planning, which in turn empowers data scientists and analytics to get in there and do the analysis. You know, the engineers at Spaceship uh, are probably just as savvy as me on experimentation and, and push for it just as much as I did, you know, um, so the different teams I'm seeing in startups here are, are definitely probably as data savvy as the US um, or very close to. Uh, so yeah, so I would say there is a difference right now, but probably won't be around for very long. Yeah, that's really heartening. Really yeah. heartening to hear. Yeah. And and how do you think people should feel about the difference in in scale of the economies and the country um something that i that i hear sometimes people reflect on is to say well australia is you know such a small percentage of of the size of the us or size of europe therefore data is much smaller um what what do you think about that that type of statement and line of thought uh i would rephrase it uh in that so instagram you know and facebook honestly and whatsapp we always test it in australia Australia is an interesting market and I'll tell you why there's uh there's very clear city centers, you know, the big cities, there's very clear regional city split. So you can do that test. Uh, there's different uh, cultural groups here. You can test on that. Um, the population and, and consumer base here is big enough that you can run a, a really decent experiment. Um, and that's not to say that Australia is nothing but an experiment, but what it is to say is that, you know, companies coming out of Australia have the benefit of learning a lot from their country, which is a country, by the way, that is attractive to US companies to learn from. Uh, there are regions in Australia, I remember learning this in university, like Southeast Queensland, for example, which is incredibly tough on uh, consumer goods and very price sensitive. So if you wanna learn about price sensitivity in the consumer space, you really wanna test in Southeast Queensland because it's a tough customer base. And if you can crack that, um, then you can you know, probably crack a lot of different markets around the world. So what I'll say is Australia is a, a great place to learn. 
And you see that in companies, you know, fintechs like uh, Afterpay, Atlassian, obviously, Canva, they, they all start here, you know, and learn so much and then boom, go worldwide, you know, hopefully conquer the US, go out into Europe kind of thing. So there's just, um, yes, the scale is different, but there is just so much. Australia is big enough and broad enough and, and disparate enough that you can just learn so much um, from the dynamics here that can apply easily to markets like the US or, or, or Europe. And that gives you a really good base to start with, you know. Um, I imagine U.S. companies that start, you know, in the U.S. dynamics struggle. Like we, Instagram struggled in Japan. We did not understand the Japan market. We had to set up a team there after, I don't know, eight, eight-ish years of trying or something and, and a local team to figure out what was going on because we had no idea. Um, so, you know, the, I think that, yes, the U.S. is, is a lot bigger, economies of scale, you can grow very rapidly, but you also it's also a very distinct market. Um, so Australian tech companies can learn from here. We can learn from New Zealand very easily. We can jump into kind of Southeast Asia very easily-ish. Um, there's a lot here that you can do with what we have that will eventually, you know, help you scale if you're, you're kind of considering global domination. Mate, I love it. I love that. I love that perspective. Um, and I think, yeah, that's just look at the time. That's also a great note to end on. Chris, I really want to thank you so much, mate, for sharing your, your experience, uh, your journey, your learnings, uh, your views on what's coming, um, how the industry is evolving and developing further. Uh, it's been extremely interesting and and super, super helpful um, for, for everyone who's in this space uh, looking to make better decisions uh, themselves and in their organizations by helping others. Uh, this has been extremely helpful uh, conversation. So thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, of course. And thank you for having me. Um, and I'm glad the, the Wi-Fi held out. I know, right? <laughs> did well. Thanks so much. Uh, for everyone listening, check out the website for more episodes like this. Obviously, the podcast, the YouTube channel. Also, we have some events coming up. We've got a trust dimension within ethics and a, um, scaling AI successfully with MLOps, uh, both happening in November. If you hear this podcast after the fact, go and check them out on the website and all the recordings will be there. We also have a um, Slack community to continue these type of conversations going. So check on the website to join those too. Chris, thanks again, mate. Thanks everyone who's listening and I'll chat to everyone soon. Thanks so much. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.